So it's the time of year, almost, where we start working on covenants in RE. And every class, every year, at the beginning of the year, creates a covenant. And the covenant is a promise about how we're going to behave with each other. And every time we start doing this, I always think back to the situation in my younger days. Um, when I was a teenager, I used to help my mom teach the preschool Sunday school class in the church I grew up in. There was one child who in my head was and will always be known as the biter. Um, I can see a picture of her now on, on, in the paper or on Facebook and think, oh, it's the biter. Um, so at this point in time, she, oops, they were legendary for biting people, kids, adults, when anything was either not to the person's liking or they felt angry. And she had a full mouthful of teeth, so it was a real bite. It wasn't a gum. Um, and she did bite me once while I was helping my mom. And after that, I remember asking my mom why we never talked about this fact. Um, we knew she bit, but we never talked to the parents. We never talked to the other kids about it. We never tried to come up with any solution. We just kind of ignored it. And it didn't make sense to me. So my, I remember my mom thinking, and this, this was not a, a UU church. This was a, a Baptist church. And she explained that it was a hard situation. We weren't technically a school. We were a church. And so the work we did was a ministry. And we didn't want to turn people away, which I got. But still the fact that someone came out of each Sunday school session with a bite mark seemed to indicate that part of volunteering in that class was bodily harm. And that seemed like a steep price to ask volunteers to pay. <laughs> the other problem was everyone knew about this. Everyone knew that the child was like to bite. And I remember the adults talking about it to each other, but not with the parents of the child who bit. And so that didn't seem very kind either to be not addressing it up front. Um, and when I look back on that situation, I realized that having a covenant or even just a set of behavior rules that everyone understood and everyone acted upon and we all talked about probably would have helped. It would have helped the volunteers be more comfortable in their position. It might have helped the parents to finally say, yes, we know this is a problem. What can we do? And it would have helped the child because we could have had some boundaries and helped her be more successful in the class as well. But that would have required uncomfortable conversation and human beings shy away from that. Um, so instead, we were left smiling on the outside but being annoyed everywhere else. I have a feeling that if I was annoyed and my mom was annoyed, a lot of other people were annoyed, including the child who was biting. So as you use, I'm happy that, that we make these covenants. Um, every year we start by making one in a class. We know, based on research done in schools and other sociological studies, that discussing the rules and the expectations for group behavior helps reduce the anxiety about what to expect for everybody involved. 
The covenant-making process is always listed on the first part of an RE curriculum. It's part of the first session in literally every curriculum I've ever read. And I've actually written two or three lessons about how and why we create this covenant. I don't want it to be an empty practice. I want the children to understand what is going on here. And the process is usually the same. We, we define the word covenant, talk about how we want to treat each other, and then the participants come up with a list of things they want in the covenant. It usually starts with don't hit people, <coughs> um, but has moved on to listen when others are talking, and the other standard school rules, don't take things from other people, um, you know, stay with the teacher, remind, if you need to go to the restroom, ask, don't run away. Um, and I have to say, you, you, the, the children in the UU classes I've worked with are very good at making a covenant. They know what's expected. But to borrow from that famous Seinfeld line, and I'm maybe dating myself, it's not the making of the covenant, it's the keeping of the covenant. The keeping is the hard part. Making a covenant is easy. You talk about the ideals, you write them down, and you move on. Sometimes we write them on a big piece of paper and put it up on the wall. Makes a nice decoration. Makes us feel good that we have, we have had this discussion and done this. However, I've noticed that we, and I'm talking about teachers, I'm talking about me, I'm talking about children, we aren't comfortable with the keeping of the covenant. We go into class and, and we forget about the covenant and about how we could use it as a tool. The kids will talk while others are talking. The teachers will ask them to stop. They'll go back to talking while others are talking. Part of it is just developmental, but it can make it hard to teach. Adults quietly gripe about the kids who won't stop talking, and the kids gripe about the adults who constantly tell them to be quiet. And we circle and circle and circle. And I was, I've been thinking, and I think the reason is we don't always directly engage each other when these things happen. We don't reference the documented expectations that we made. When we make that covenant and we say, be respectful, that means listen when someone else is talking. It could be an adult, it could be another child. But that respectfulness is about treating others the way you would like to be treated. Um, but we forget that we can call kids, we can call children and youth back into the covenant. And that's our job as UUs, to both do our best to adhere to the promises we made and remind people when they're not following the promises they made. But it's uncomfortable. Like I said, what if the child still doesn't want to listen? Then what do we do? What if they make a point that we don't know how to answer? What if? Um, what if we don't fully know what could happen. We use that uncomfortableness as a way to avoid having to deal with the uncertainty and to avoid being caught in a situation where we aren't sure what to say or do. And this definitely happens with adults too. I can think of three things in my head right now where I have not said something because I was uncomfortable with how it was going to be received. In the traditional teacher-student paradigm that 
has existed for since we industrialized schools. Teachers have the answers, and children are the vessels the answers go into. But that's not only that's not correct. It's also unhelpful. It makes the, the child into less than a person and more of a receptacle. And it ignores the fact that we are all, even adults, students. If we ever stop learning, that's not a good place to be. So going back to talking about calling people back into covenant, it's not fun to tell someone that they're not behaving as they promised they would. You don't know how the person's going to react. You don't know what might happen as a result of the conversation. You don't know what might be blamed on you. However, if we aren't willing to address when people, children or adults, aren't behaving within our covenantal promises, we don't really have a covenant. We have a nice piece of paper, but we're not following through. So in thinking about our classes coming up this fall, I was thinking, how are we going to make the keeping of the covenant easier? So one of the things we do talk about in, in RE that I think is helpful is we talk about what covenant looks like. What does respectful look like? How do you know when some, someone is being respectful versus disrespectful? And the children will give examples. Um, like respectful behavior is listening with your body, which is not only looking at the person, but pointing your body toward them. Disrespectful behavior is talking while someone else is talking or making jokes, even if you think they're funny, there's a time and a place to do that. But the most important part of the keeping of the covenant is imagining how others might feel. If you tell someone in class, going from child to child, to shut up, how are they going to feel? Think about how you would feel, I like to tell kids, if someone told you to shut up, like your thoughts aren't valued, like you're not wanted in the group. But I'm planning to add something new to this covenant process this year, and we're going to add some role play. Practicing telling others when they aren't in covenant is important. How do you say, I don't like what you're doing, or I, you aren't being respectful right now, is something that takes practice. Um, Practicing both advocating for yourself as a child or teen is important. The other part is hearing when someone feels that you've not kept your promise. Practicing hearing these things in a situation can actually help you hear them better in real life. It can make it easier. Knowing how to issue an apology knowing what your apology could consist of, knowing that trying to change your behavior is more important than the words you can say, are all important parts of be keeping a covenant. Most of all, and my favorite part to tell my children is that you're only in control of your own reactions. You can apologize, but someone else may not be ready to hear it. You can tell someone they've been hurtful, but they not, may not be ready to process it. But taking the steps that we can as individuals, as children, as youth, as adults, to help repair a break in our promises is a way to move toward keeping the covenant and not just the making of the covenant.
Looking around this room, I see a metaphor on our walls, a metaphor of covenant. As Laura described, covenant is hard because of the doing, not so much the making. It is the keeping of the covenant, the coming back into covenant. Why is it so hard? Because we aren't talking to a mirror image of ourselves. We're talking to somebody else we're in relationship with. And relationships are always complicated by history, by politics, by power. One person has more power than the other, and whether the, the one with more power or less confronting someone else is that much harder. When we think about covenant and the promises we've needed to ask someone to keep, it can open up and stir things for us a little bit. Stir some hard memories from your own experience. I want to invite you into a time to reflect on the metaphor that I see coming out of our walls. So take a moment and get in a meditative space. Perhaps you had thought or were reminded of following covenant, trying hard and being afraid that you would make a mistake. Perhaps you remembered a time you made a mistake, said something wrong, did something thoughtless, or someone told you you were thoughtless. Perhaps you've noticed somebody else do something out of covenant, out of covenant with our principles, with our mission in the congregation. I invite you into a moment to acknowledge that this is stirring in you. And when you are ready to close your eyes or stare at a neutral spot and imagine with me our covenant. Imagine that our covenant is a great woven tapestry, suspended sturdily between the ceiling all the way down to the foundation and the earth below. It has golden and silver sparkling threads and earthy, fuzzy threads, all different colors saying the words on this tapestry, the words of our covenant. And along the side are holes you can grasp onto, holes. If you were nearby, it's so strong you could steady yourself on it, you could grasp it to pull yourself up. And we would say, this is our great covenant. We gather round it and hold on to it for support. Now imagine that each one of us in this room is carrying a basket Each basket is filled with stones. Each stone in your basket is painted with a different mistake you believe you have made. And you have other stones, each painted with a mistake you believe somebody else made. And there are still more stones with all the mistakes other people think you have made. The baskets we each carry are heavy. Imagine now that you ask the community to tie your rocks to our covenant tapestry. 
and voices in the community share ideas and the words become threads tying your rock to the holds on the tapestry and once tied your rocks are as light as air. Now rest and imagine the whole room filled with rocks tied to the tapestry. Everyone's bare baskets easier to bear. I invite you to take a breath and return to the space now. The space where the tapestry lives as a metaphor and is echoed on our walls, especially the east wall, with our hopes and dreams and even some errors and flaws hanging there for us to see. I invite you now to contemplate a theological concept with me. And because you don't know me well yet, I shall let you know that when I say theological concept, concept that is a content warning for I'm about to get a little abstract. <laughs> so here we are, out of our meditation, and ready to think abstractly. So please bear with me. We have imagined what the covenant does for us. And we have imagined how we use the covenant and how hard, especially, it is to keep covenant, as Laura so clearly described. But why? Why are we a covenantal people to begin with? What does it mean for us to be a covenantal faith? You may have heard the phrases, we're about deeds, not creeds. We're about deeds, not creeds, or the longer version, we're a covenantal faith, not a creedal faith. When I first heard we're about deeds, not creeds, I thought, oh, okay, creeds must be bad, and covenant is the solution. Are we an anti-creedal faith? Is covenant our stand-in for a creed? What about laws? Is covenant our stand-in for a law? Are we a translation of other faiths into some format we find more tolerable? I don't think so. When we say we're about deeds, not creeds, that simple sentence can be misleading. Because we aren't. If you look at the people among us, we are not inherently anti-creed. For some faiths, the many that are non-creedal, there is some guide, though. A creed is a guide for belief, and there are laws that are guides for behavior. So we know what to do and how. Various religions and branches, by the way, communicate all this differently, and calling any faith creedal or non-creedal opens a floodgate to controversy, which we aren't going to open right now. That's another sermon. You can bid on it at the auction. <laughs> Regardless, though, Unitarian Universalism isn't anti-creed or anti-law. Indeed, our religion, in this faith, we make room for the convictions of individuals and communal creeds and laws among the diverse minds and hearts that make up our faith community. Do we not have Unitarian Universalist atheists? UU Buddhists? UU Christians? UU Cherokee elders? UU Hindus? I have more. You, you Hindus. You, you humanists, I mean. You, you Jews. 
you you Muslims, you you pagans, and even those you yous who choose the simple term you you. <laughs> we are all equally Unitarian Universalist. How? The reason there is room for conviction and diverse perspectives is because we have always been in search of the ground of being beneath the creeds. And the goals and the visions and the hopes out beyond all the laws. We have been asking a question about how we can go beyond and underneath and find the underlying unity, as David Bumbaugh wrote, undergirding all our differences. Not to make us all one, but to seek in the wilderness in a hopeful way that there is, with a deep faith that there is a way beneath the creeds, beyond the laws, to create our beautiful, more embracing and just world, our beloved community. The core of our theology as a covenantal religion has always been to move together on this journey. And out in such a wilderness, we need guides. And our guides are not creeds, our guides are not laws, but we have guides. We have guides in our Unitarian Universalist principles and the sources we draw from. But that's not concrete enough. Within our congregations, we come together to discern our vision as a guide, to know our collective hope. But that's not enough to know what to do. So we collectively discern a mission. What shall we seek to do as a group? But even principles and a vision and a mission aren't enough. They aren't enough. How can we, with our diverse congregations, diversity of beliefs, of perspectives, ages, classes, racial identities, gender identities, sexualities, talents, political perspectives, how can we move in the same direction, doing things that carry out our mission, Shall we say that everyone who wants to be a member has to carry out the mission of the church? Sign on to that, and you're in. Don't do that, and you're out. I wonder how that would work. If I... <laughs> really? Yeah. If I or anyone join the church and are told to carry out the mission, who decides that I'm on mission? What if because of my limited perspective, I have some limits. We all have limits on our perspective. What if I think I'm doing well, but I'm actually getting in the way of our mission, working against the vision? What if someone thinks I am and is afraid to tell me, and everyone else believes I am? Then we lose connection. Who calls each one of us in? And who welcomes each one of us in to the work of the mission? Ah, the covenant. Our covenant as a verb. Not only a document or a beautiful tapestry, but a thing that we pull ourselves up by, that we grasp onto to steady ourselves, that we tie our burdens to. When we covenant 
We covenant to support one another in our spiritual journeys. We covenant to call one another back in so we don't get lost. To call someone to help guide us back when we feel lost. When we covenant, we weave together our shared journeys, supporting each individual and urging us all together on a shared journey of creating a more embracing and just world. Here at Akatink, we have a beautiful covenant document resting in our bylaws, and I invite you all to read it. Yet, the covenant that we do in this community is a verb. We covenant to rest on the words. We covenant to call one another back in. And even in that document, it says the words will change and evolve. Of course they will, as will our vision and our mission. Our work is active. Our work is a verb. The covenant is a process of guiding us all and allowing our burdens and mistakes to be woven into our tapestry. So lean on it. Pull on it. Invite others to rest their burdens in it so that we can do this phenomenal work of being a people who seek to do something unknown, to seek to do something beautiful, to seek together, because we know, we believe, we hope that together we make this more enjoyable and fundamentally more possible. Let us lean on our covenant as a verb, guiding us in support and joy, making our journey meaningful, and especially always finding our way into covenant once again with one another. May this be so. Blessed be and amen. Amen.